What is happening to the surface of the planet Earth and to California's Central Valley? Is this California business as usual? Or is this the fight over human and non-human rights? What are the honest, hardcore facts about reckless human behavior that cause the peril that humans make for each other? And what can we do? Where do we find the promise for a better world? Stay tuned for this week's installment. I am Pegasus, your host for The Peril and the Promise. Sponsored by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. Today on The Peril and the Promise, we have one of those special shows where we're mostly reading articles from the Stanislaw Connections and other stories that people have sent in reporting on um, different environmental justice and social justice and health issues throughout the Central Valley and sometimes affecting the rest of the planet as well. So one of the stories today we're going to hear is from The Valley Citizen, which was republished in the Stanislaw Connections, and it's about subsidence regarding water in the valley. And another one of our stories today comes from the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons. This is the story about climate change and the responsibility of the military. And another one of the pieces that will be read into the microphone from print media is about 5G. That's the fifth generation of uh, mobile phone cellular radiation and the health effects. So let's go ahead and start with the story about climate change and the responsibility of the military. This uh, article uh, starts with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., which says, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death, unquote. The author of this article from the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, the author says, everything is interconnected. Armed conflicts, human rights violation, environmental pollution, climate change, social injustice. Climate change and environmental pollution are inescapably part of modern warfare. The role of the military in climate change is enormous. Oil is indispensable for war. Militarism is the most oil-exhaustive activity on the planet Earth. Any talk of climate change, if it does not include the military, is nothing but hot air. While many of us reduce our carbon footprint through simpler living, the military is immune to climate change concerns. The military does not report climate change emissions to any national or international body, thanks to the U.S. arm twisting during the 1997 negotiations of the first international accord to limit global warming emissions, also known as the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change. If you're just tuning in, this is The Peril and the Promise. I am Pegasus, and I'm reading an article by Ria Fairchow of Belgium. Uh, she's part of the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons. And she has been uh, working on these issues for a couple decades. I met Rhea when she was on the Family Spirit Walk, which was a justice and prayer walk from Los Alamos, New Mexico, to the nuclear test site in Nevada. Again, this article is by Rhea Ferjau. That's V-E-R-J-A-U-W. Um, I don't remember if I'm pronouncing my Dutch, my Flemish, my Netherlands language skills here very well but Ria Farchau is her name. And she says, she continues in this article, 
by saying, in this article, we only highlight the impact of U.S. military actions. This does not mean that the other countries, states, and weapon manufacturers are less responsible for the huge damage done to our climate and the environment. The U.S. is one of many players in the global influence by military acts on our climate and environment. The U.S. military accounts for 25% of the total U.S. consumption of oil, which is itself 25% of the world total consumption. So again, that the, if you look at the whole planet, 25% of the world's oil consumption is done in the United States. And 25% of the United States' consumption is from the U.S. military. The U.S.'s sixth fleet is one of the most polluting entities in the Mediterranean Sea. The U.S. Air Force is the single largest consumer of jet fuel in the world. In 1945, the U.S. military built an air base at Dahran, Saudi Arabia, the start of securing permanent access to the newly discovered Middle East oil. President Roosevelt had no negotiated a quid pro quo with the Saudi family. And that was military protection in exchange for cheap oil for U.S. markets and the military. Eisenhower possessed great prescience about the post-World War II rise of the permanent war-based industry dictating national policy and the need for citizen vigilance and engagement to curb, quote, the military-industrial, unquote, complex. Yet he made a fateful decision on energy policy, which set the United States and the world on a course from which we must find our way back, and we're still trying to seven decades later. The rapid rise in greenhouse gas emissions that creates the current climate crisis began around 1950, in the period immediately following the Second World War. It's not a coincidence that oil had been important in the First World War, but controlling access to oil supplies was crucial in the Second World War. The Allies would not have won had they not been able to cut off German access to oil and to maintain it for themselves. The lesson for the United States in particular after the war was that continuing access to and monopolization of the world's oil was essential if it was to be the world's superpower. This made oil a central military priority and also cemented the dominant position of the petroleum automotive sector in the United States. These were preconditions of a system dependent upon greenhouse gas emitting technologies for military and domestic production, the source of the climate change we are facing now. By the 1970s, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Iranian Revolution threatened U.S. access to oil in the Middle East, leading to the President Carter's 1980 State of the Union warmongering doctrine. The Carter Doctrine holds that any threat to U.S. Uh, access to the Middle East oil would be resisted, quote, by any means necessary, including military force, unquote. Carter put teeth into his doctrine by creating the Rapid Development Joint Task Force, whose purpose was to combat operations in the Persian Gulf area when necessary. Ronald Reagan ramped that up with the militarization of oil and the formation of the U.S. Central Command, also known as CENTCOM, whose raison d'etre was to ensure access to oil, diminish Soviet Union influence in the region, and control political regimes in the region for national security interests. With growing reliance on oil from Africa and the Caspian Sea region, the U.S. has since augmented its military capacities in those regions. Again, this is an article by Ria Fergeau of the uh, International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons. And you're listening to The Peril and the Promise. I'm your host, Pegasus, and we'll be back after a quick musical break.
Welcome back to The Peril and the Promise. I am Pegasus, your host, and we're reading a couple articles today um, that have been uh, brought to our attention at The Peril and the Promise here at kcbpradio.org. Uh, the one that I'm finishing right now is by Ria Ferchal of the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons. And she continues by saying, The U.S. military admits to getting through 395,000 barrels of oil every day, consuming and using and burning 395,000 barrels of oil a day. This is an astonishing figure, and it's also possibly a considerable underestimate, because once all the oil used from military contractors and weapons manufacturing and all the secret bases and operations that are omitted from the official figures are factored in, the real daily usage, according to some sources, is likely to be closer to a million barrels a day of oil. One of the estimates of the U.S. consumption of oil in the military alone being closer to a million barrels a day comes from climate and capitalism. Uh, you can find that at climateandcapitalism.com. This is from February of 2015. And we now return to Ria Fajal's article as she points out that the military system of uh, the United States generates around 5% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Much of these emissions are from the military infrastructure that the United States maintains around the world. The environmental damage caused by war is not limited to climate change or the use of Agent Orange, depleted uranium, and other toxic chemicals, the effects of nuclear bombing and nuclear testing. Uh, there's also landmines and unexploded ordnance lingering in conflict zones long after wars have moved on from those regions. Ria Virjao concludes her article with the hope that we can turn the tide. Peace movements are continuing to do research to look into the military's carbon dioxide emissions and poisoning of the planet. Human rights activists are speaking out clearly against war and destruction. And um, this organization, the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, wishes the, the world to know uh, the truth about what the main causes of climate change are. The United States contributes more than 30% of the global warming gases to the atmosphere. And remember, I quoted Ria a few minutes ago where 5% of the global warming gases are coming from the U.S. military, and the other 25% is from just the United States uh, civilian sector. So that's a total of 30% of climate change, global warming gases, uh, carbon dioxide emissions coming from the United States. And remember, the United States is only 5% of the world's population. The pieces of the U.S. federal budget pie that fund education and energy and environment and social services and housing and new job creation, all these things receive less funding than the military defense budget. Again, that was an article you can find online at icbuw.eu. We have two other articles we'll be reading today on The Peril and the Promise. I am Pegasus, and we'll be right back after a quick musical break. Welcome back to The Peril and the Promise. I am your host, Pegasus, 
And today is one of those special episodes of The Peril and the Promise that happens about once a year when we have to catch up on our reading from Stanislaw Connections and other sources of information that have been published in print media. Uh, This article is from Eric Kane uh, of the Valley Citizen that was also republished in the Stanislaw Connections in April of 2019. But it's a timeless issue regarding the watershed region in which uh, uh, this station, kcbpradio.org, is located, the Central Valley. So Eric Kane points out that subsidence is this uh, phenomenon of the valley sinking when the water table is being depleted too quickly. So subsidence and socialism, Eric says, the words are inextricably linked. Subsidence is caused by the overpumping of groundwater. Pump too much groundwater, and the land sinks. Pump too much water over decades, and the land sinks a lot. According to the United States Geological Survey, the USGS, quote, The compaction of susceptible aquifer systems caused by excessive groundwater pumping is the single largest cause of subsidence in California and the 5,200 square miles affected by subsidence in the San Joaquin Valley since the latter half of the 20th century has been identified as the single largest human alteration of the Earth's surface topography, unquote. So Eric Kane points out that's that's a big deal. Um, Remember that the San Joaquin Valley once featured the largest body of water west of the Mississippi, the Tulare Lake. It's gone now, it's used up, but over a hundred years ago, in a wet year, Tulare Lake would cover almost 700 square miles of the valley. Under those conditions, towns like Corcoran and Stratford would have been submerged under 25 feet of water. The water that filled Tulare Lake came from the mighty Kings River. The Kings River originates in the Upper Sierra, courses through one of the deepest gorges in North America, then pours out into the Tulare Lake bed and the San Joaquin River. Or at least it used to. These days, like most of our rivers, water from the Kings River gets diverted to farms long before it reaches the historic destinations. Tulare Lake is gone, long gone. And the San Joaquin itself, the second largest river in the state after Sacramento River, was reduced to a trickle and even dried up for long stretches until litigation forced the state to increase flows for the sake of the fish life. Uh, The case is now under appeal. Beginning with industrial cowboys, Henry Miller and George Lux, and ending in the modern era with folks such as Stuart Resnick and the J.G. Boswell Corporation, we see that the costs of water consumption in the Central Valley of California have been socialized while the profits continue to be privatized. In this article, Eric Kane is referring to the environmental costs, the costs to the current and future generations of humans. Natural resources in the San Joaquin uh, the Valley have been routinely exploited since at least the later part of the 19th century. Lux and Miller were San Francisco butchers who became cattle barons. The key to their ultimate dominance of the cattle industry was to control the land and water in the San Joaquin Valley And the key to that control was politics. They bought land and manipulated the political system to gain water rights. In many cases where farmers didn't have access to the growing network of canals and ditches, enterprising farmers discovered they could simply drill. They could tap into the vast underground aquifer and water their fields with what seemed to be an endless ocean of precious fresh water. Over time, as agriculture flourished and surface water supplies reached terminal limits, 
Groundwater became the primary source not only for farmers, but also for the growing towns and cities of the Southern Valley. Even today, the city of Fresno relies upon water pumped from the ground for most of its water supply. In drought years, even routine users of surface water turned to groundwater. During California's long-term drought, groundwater extraction increased exponentially and water levels plummeted. If you're just tuning in, I am Pegasus. This is The Peril and the Promise. And in this episode, we're reading a few articles. This article is from Eric Kane, first published in the Valley Citizen, later published in Stanislaw Connections. And it's a tutorial on where the water comes from and how all of us survive in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley specifically. Eric Kane continues his article by naming the G.J. Boswell Corporation, the tomato and cotton empire with holdings of about 150,000 acres. Kane says Boswell is not the largest landowner in the southern San Joaquin Valley. That's Stuart Resnick, who has 15 million trees, mostly pistachios, and owns approximately 180,000 acres and is the single largest water user in the United States. That's Stuart Resnick. The Boswells and Resnicks, they're corporate business people. They're epitomes of what people mean when they call it Big Ag, short for agriculture. Their prime headquarters are in Los Angeles, where they have found out ways to avoid costs, especially in the forms of taxes. But taxes are what pay for the dams, canals, roads, and bridges that provide the infrastructure that makes farming possible. And when that infrastructure fails as the result of overpumping groundwater, taxes repair it. So that's why this article is called Subsidence? Question mark? Socialize it, period. We have to take a 15-second break, and we'll be right back with Eric Kane's article on subsidence in the Central Valley. Right now, we're finishing reading the second of three articles on today's The Peril and the Promise. Eric Kane is making the case that the subsidence of the, the valley through the depletion of the aquifer has been uh, a socialized issue in terms of the individual rich families who benefit from the wealth of this state, making sure that the burdens and the costs to the future generations and to the environment are socialized and spread across the entire population. In a just economy, one might be entitled to think that those who ruin public resources should have the responsibility of paying for the damage. But that's not how things work in the southern San Joaquin Valley, where the biggest profit takers have always followed one of the lesser known but most powerful axioms of corporate wisdom. Socialize the costs, privatize the profits. That's a quote. Socialize the costs and privatize the profits, unquote. Again, this is an article by Eric Kane, first published in the Valley Citizen and later published in the Stanislaw Connections, a publication of the Modesto Peace Life Center. Eric Kane uh, finishes his article with the conclusion over 180,000 acres owned by Stuart Resnick and the 150,000 acres owned by J.G. Boswell Corporation are taking care of many basic needs globally while having a terrifying effect on the valley's access to water, whereby the private owners, the Resnicks and the Boswells, manage to avoid responsibility for the damage done to public resources through the routine operation of their businesses. In most cases, these are the very same people who sponsor messages about the economic harms from government regulation and the dark evils of socialism. 
So says Eric Kane, who's written this article about subsidence and socialism. We'll be right back after a short musical break on The Peril and the Promise uh, with a final reading regarding G5, the technology that is promised to deliver more wonderful access to Wi-Fi and internet and smartphones, but could be harming some people who are sensitive to electro-smog, also known as electromagnetic energy. Welcome back to The Peril and the Promise. I'm your host, Pegasus. And our final reading today comes from a German source translated by Gisela Howe. And it's just a summary of what to expect with the fifth generation of mobile phones. So the way that you're able to listen to my voice here on kcbpradio.org 95.5 FM is probably either through your computer, your Wi-Fi phone, through the World Wide Web, or through an FM radio receiver, perhaps in your car as you're traveling down the highway. In any case, the electromagnetic energy of this audio signal has certain biological impacts. I know that uh, when I was first starting out in radio broadcasting um, 20 years ago, Stephen Dunifer of Free Radio Berkeley taught us that if you touch the radio antenna and hold it for a minute, you might feel the heat. You might get a radio burn from the antenna, and those were only 100-watt stations. KCBPradio.org broadcasts at uh, thousands of watts. So touching our antenna would probably give you a burn much quicker. We don't have time in this radio program to talk about all the different ways of electromagnetic energy having potential harm to the human body and to the environment. But I'm just going to talk a little bit about telephones as we also read from Gisela Howe's summary, the English translation from German, regarding 5G. There's 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, and 5G. From the 19, around 1970 to 1980, the first generation of mobile phones was coming into existence. The 2G was 1990 to 2004. The 3G, starting in 2004 to 2010, only about six years, that was two megabytes per second. So a lot more than the kilobytes per second of the 2G. The fourth G that most of us are using, the latest generation, is one gigabyte per second. So that's a lot more than two megabytes per second. Um, So the 5G is supposed to be higher than one gigabyte per second. So the higher level of bytes and hertz and gigahertz of the 5G is that 5G might go up to 60 gigahertz. The rule is that the higher the frequency, the smaller the coverage area. So the 5G coverage needs to be more needs more transmission towers to cover the same area as previously covered with 4G. So that means wireless antennas could possibly be on every lamppost, utility pole, home and business throughout the entire neighborhood that you live in, uh, towns and even cities. So the 5G uh, millimeter waves, uh, they don't travel well through buildings 
and they tend to be absorbed by rain and plants. So that interferes with the signal. That's why they need more of these antennas around there to, to get 5G uh, services into your devices. So the fact that it's absorbed by rain and plants is an interesting physical issue. Like what does that mean to the rainwater as it's falling and hits the ground? And what does that mean to the plants? Most people agree that there's a, a little bit more heat that comes around. So basically cell phone or mobile phone signals um, use microwave transmissions. It's a form of radiation similar to uh, microwave ovens, uh, but it's a higher frequency. And um, it's non-ionizing, unlike x-rays and radioactivity from nuclear bombs and, and waste. Um, those are ionizing radiation, but cell phone radiation and microwave ovens are not ionized. So that means um, they're not strong enough to directly damage your genetic material, but they can cause other health issues because of the way that a microwave oven, for instance, boils water or heats up water in the food. The same thing is happening that water molecules um, on your legs, if you have your cell phone in your pocket, are being heated up. So you just have a hotter spot in your body next to your pocket where your um, cell phone, your mobile phone is. So the temperature in the human body cells and, and tissues uh, rises when there's a radioactive signal, uh, you know, a, a microwave signal from your telephone in your pocket. So the lower the frequency, the deeper the radiation penetrates into the tissue. And the frequency also indicates which cells and tissues are affected. Non-ionizing radiation from 5G coverage will be uh, impacting our blood. We'll just be basically heating up our blood a little bit more. So the new 5G microwaves of cell phone towers is also getting absorbed by leaves of trees and plants and it raises their temperature so that, especially here in California, the threat of fires could grow um, and nobody's quite sure yet what the science says, what the results will be to heating up the liquid, the water inside the leaves of plants with 5G inundating everything as that gets deployed. One of the reproductive health studies showed that the electromagnetic radiation has a direct influence on sperm count. A man that carries their phones in their pant pocket near the front or on a belt were more likely to have lower sperm counts and more or inactive or less mobile sperm, according to one of the studies. So again, there needs to be a lot more uh, a scientific study to figure out what's happening with the current generation, the 4G of, of phones and other uh, electromagnetic energy in people's buildings. The point that the anti-5G activists are making here is that more research should be done and uh, the corporations and businesses should exercise more caution before deploying this technology. Life is so You've been listening to The Peril and the Promise from kcbpradio.org, produced by Pegasus here at the Peace Life Center of Modesto. You can tune in every week at this time to learn about the peril that humans make for each other and the promise that we can make for a better world as community. Music on The Peril and the Promise is by Alzara Getz and Dorothy's Melton. 